morning. Welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. Amber Athey will dispute the claims that a large portion of pregnant women miscarried after taking the Pfizer shot. And then the Hills Foreign Policy staff writer Laura Kelly will join us from the ground in Ukraine. But first, we want to bring you some results from the primary races that took place in New York, Florida, and Oklahoma. Congressman Jerry Nadler defeated Carolyn Maloney in New York's 12th district, while Val Demings won the Democratic nomination to face off against Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. And then in Florida also, uh, former Republican Governor Charlie Crist won the Democratic uh, position to take on DeSantis in November. And then in Oklahoma, Madison Horn won the Democrats' runoff in the Senate, while Trump endorsed Mark Wayne Mullen won the Republican nomination for the state's Senate seat. News Nation's Leland Vitter joins us now to discuss some of these results. Leland, thanks for being with us. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, so what, you know, in your opinion, were the big takeaways from last night? You know, the one thing about primary elections is that you can kind of have something in it for everybody. I think there wasn't any real surprises in the results you just read, Robbie. The special election in New York uh, that went Democratic, um, this is now the fourth special congressional election since the Dobbs decision, all of which won by Democrats by larger margins. Uh, then uh, President Biden won that congressional district. So if, if you had one takeaway, I mm. think it's that we are seeing a change uh, from what you and I say would have talked about in May, which was this looming red wave uh, out there on the horizon coming towards shore. And, and Democrats are slowly flipping that on its head, uh, whether it be the Kansas uh, abortion referendum or in the special election that we saw uh, last night. Yeah. Well, there, there was some messiness in New York's 10th district for, for Democrats. Congressman Mondaire Jones was defeated by Trump impeachment counsel Daniel Goldman for the Democratic primary in that district. Uh, also, 25-year-old progressive activist Maxwell Frost won the Democratic primary uh, and will be the most likely, uh, most likely become the first Gen Z member of Congress. He was supported by Bernie Sanders. So it was a kind of a mixed bag for progressives because of the messy redistricting in New York's 10th. A whole slate of progressives were kind of stacked up against each other in that district. Um, and we saw a late, a late, a uh, late in the uh, race uh, uh, um, endorsement from Nancy Pelosi come through for Mondaire. Didn't seem to help him very much. What do you make of that outcome there? Low voter turnout, uh, primarily. And as you point out, that you have. You have, you have an impeachment council who was sort of a, a very a standard bearer, democratic, middle of the road uh, candidate, uh, defeat the progressive. Then you have Frost win, um, who's the much more progressive candidate in another district. This is going to happen, especially in a place like New York, where you're dealing with, with, small, with small voter turnout um, and an enthusiastic base when it comes to uh, different individual candidates. I, I'm not, you know, they're, they're interesting. Um, and when you dig down about Frost and about the first Gen Z congressman, when you dig down uh, about Goldman and exactly sort of how he ran this race is sort of a, a typical Democrat in the, in the New York, almost Mario Cuomo-like uh, like brand, uh, they're interesting. I'm not sure on a national level uh, how important they are or how much they tell us uh, about what's coming or where the Democratic Party is really shifting. There, pro there probably was not something last night, um, and I hate to pay, play, you know, pour cold water on on a segment or a hypothesis, but I don't think there was a, a 
a primary last night that was like the AOC victory uh, mm. four years ago that sort of was like, holy cow, what a wake-up call. Uh, you know, you wake up on Wednesday morning and, and the world has changed politically. Not, not a wake-up call, but as you said, I want to go back to what you said a minute ago, a warning sign certainly for Republicans. You know, if we oh, yeah. flash back to beginning of the summer, you know, a time when inflation, inflation out of control, gas prices, Biden with very low poll numbers, Republicans looking like they can do no wrong or feeling like they can do no wrong. Now, we, in the wake of, I think, several things you identified, the, uh, the, the Dobbs decision, um, may, is some of these candidates uh, being, uh, uh, especially in the national platform candidates in Arizona, Georgia, other places, being further right than, even th than those states would support based on their you know, most recent electoral performances. And, uh, and what, what, you know, what else? What is the other factor? Is there something, is it Trump being kind of back front and center again with the Mar-a-Lago news that there's this chunk of voters who might vote for Republicans, but only if like the Trump faction is off screen? Great questions. You'd think in Pennsylvania that the Trump faction would actually be more helpful uh, if they came out. That's how Trump won uh, Pennsylvania uh, back in 2016. Uh, Robbie, I think you make a great point when you bring up um, those states. And what we're seeing, um, and I had a long conversation with Hugh Hewitt this morning about it, who takes the other side of this, but I think we're seeing that at least on the senatorial level, the statewide level, the actual quality of the candidates really matters. And, and when voters are seeing Herschel Walker talk about uh, sending clean air over to China, mm. uh, when they hear Dr. Oz walk through a grocery store aisle and uh, <laughs> a, a, a veggie tray uh, coup d'etat, um, which I'm sure my French teacher would be annoyed at my pronunciation. Uh, when, you, when, you have, when you really dig into Blake Masters' background in Arizona, um, and you have a situation where there's enough money on the Democratic side to really expose those individuals uh, for who they are, voters don't particularly like them. Um, and I think one of the things that you're going to see over the next uh, two months, we're already seeing it, is where Mitch McConnell um, is going to put his money, uh, because these guys can't raise money on their own, where he's going to put his money to try to save certain seats, um, just simply to, to preserve Republican mm. seats. It doesn't appear as though that the, they have enough, uh, the Republican uh, establishment does, to save all of them. Hmm. Well, you know, you said a little bit earlier that you didn't think that these races were necessarily a referendum on some of these bigger questions that get asked. You know, are we now out of a Trump era into a DeSantis era? Is this a progressive way like the one we saw in 2018? Or is this proof positive that blue dogs are the way to go? And I do expect that some of those narratives are going to come out of New York's tent, despite that not really being the case. Because if you look at the breakdown, you know, the conversation is largely centered on the fact that if Neo or Jones, the two you know, so-called progressive candidates were not in this race. Either of them, if either of them had dropped out, it seems likely that the other would have won, with Goldman only winning 25% of the vote, uh, Neo with 23, and Jones with 18. And I'm curious what you make of Jones's decision to even run in the 10th district instead of staying in his more Westchester adjacent district, and really gambling on the idea that people in that Manhattan district weren't going to mind that he wasn't a resident of that district, that he was a newcomer, and would kind of, I guess, accept the fact that he was redistricted redistricts it out of where he would prefer to be. Boy, Brianna, um, you, you have me uh, thoroughly out of my league um, <laughs> in, 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 ter in terms of the nuance of Republican politics. And what I would 
what I would say is I have absolutely no idea. It's just not something that we get as granular about on, on the show. Um, but at the same level, I think the fact that we have to get that granular to try and get some type of bigger meaning out of it tells you there may not be a bigger meaning. I think there's really important answers to all the questions you asked, none of which I have. But at the same level, it, it speaks to just sort of how uh, individual those answers are to New York and to these districts mm. and to these candidates rather than having some national meaning. Well, and I think that's that's a point I would make here in the Jones-Goldman uh, race. You know, Goldman did run a campaign very focused on you know, what I would say are sort of resistance liberal issues, you know, talking about election integrity or talking about the Republican attacks on, on election integrity and the threat of to democracy and all those kinds of like, you know, things that your MSNBC voters are, are concerned about. And maybe that's really a successful playbook in New York right now, given, you know, the composition of sort of your New York liberals. Is that a good message, you know, nationally? Is that something, you know, Pelosi is going to want Dems everywhere to, to talk Talk about that instead of what uh, the party is doing to, you know, fix the economic situation. Yeah, well, it was also a close race, and he got the New York Times endorsement, as we discussed on this show. There was some feeling that he won it because of the closeness of his family to the owners of the New York Times and, and some what people thought was a little bit of bad optics there. Uh, he was, in many ways, the establishment a candidate with the establishment advantage, and you would expect this. And in some ways, the story is that it would have looked, it seems like it would have been a blowout of either Progressive hadn't been in the race and whether or not this is a real wake-up call for the decision-making as progressives try to grow their ranks in Congress, whether or not there needs to be a little bit more sportsmanship at play. Mm -hmm. well, sp sportsmanship in politics? Come on. <laughs> yeah. the, the 1970s are calling and would like, their, would, would like their view of the world back. Uh, Robbie, I think you, you brought up a great point um, about sort of the election integrity thing, and I would remind everybody, these are primaries. These aren't general elections. Um, the only sort of real general election test we have of what works and what doesn't, and granted this was uh, going back to November, uh, is Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia. He wins by plus two mm -hmm. or three in a Biden plus 10 state. Um, and he did that by talking about kitchen table issues while Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, uh, talked about Trump, 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 election integrity, Trump, Trump bad election integrity. Right. Um, so you, you've got that side of it. And then we saw last night uh, down in Florida. Yes, uh, I was going to ask you about Ron that. Go ahead. Ron DeSantis's uh, Republican-backed uh, school board candidates sweep, sweep the, the, the ticket uh, and, and run the night. And I think that shows you that that, that issue of uh, parental control in schools is also going to be a, a deciding factor in November. Um, and between those two points, I think you find a lot of the answers that we are, we're looking for. Yeah. And if there was going to be backlash, you know, some, some accusing uh, those criti critics of DeSantis saying he's overreaching by some of the things he's doing, you, did, you certainly didn't see it in those results to the extent it was a referendum on, you know, how he's handling those issues. Um, it was very, very popular, at least in, in that county, in Miami County. Um, we're going to talk about that more in depth uh, in a little bit. Leland, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you both for the time. And we'll have Brianna's Radar up next. Stick around for that.
Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, trended yesterday on Twitter after pleading guilty to drunk driving. Many people have scrutinized how this case was handled to see if he received any preferential treatment, and I think that scrutiny is understandable. No one here needs to be reminded that we live in a world in which the rich and powerful get to play by very different rules than everyone else. Now, it seems like Pelosi's case was treated normally. He faces prison time. Even an expert brought on by Fox News, a station hardly sympathetic to the Pelosi's, agreed that there is no evidence here of special treatment. But while everyone was focused on the Paul Pelosi drunk driving case, the real Pelosi corruption story was not in the West Coast vineyards where he was arrested, but back east in the swamp. You see, multimillionaire Paul Pelosi benefited from one of the 12 million Paycheck Protection Program loans that were issued in 2021, and he won't be paying back a dime. Pelosi owns an 8% share in a restaurant-based company called EDI, which will not have to repay two loans worth a total of $1.7 million. Both loans were completely forgiven, along with loans taken out by such notable small business owners as Khloe Kardashian, Tom Brady, and Reese Witherspoon. And that's not all. 25 loans valued at $4 million went to businesses and properties owned and rented out by the Trump Organization and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And even though PPP money was supposed to go to making sure people were able to keep their jobs through the COVID lockdowns, 15 of the Trump-related properties that received loans said they retained one job at most. And that's if they reported job numbers at all. Meanwhile, most small business owners saw little to no benefit. 1% of PPP borrowers got over one quarter of the loan money, and only 25% of PPP funds went to workers that would have lost their jobs. The rest went to business owners, shareholders, creditors, and the like. Now, if you're wondering, when we as a political community debated the standards for PPP forgiveness, how companies should have to prove they use their PPP to actually retain workers, and whether PPP should be means-tested to keep people like billionaires Jay-Z and Kanye from benefiting? The answer is, we never did. As is often the case with policies intended to bail out the reckless elites that exacerbated the supply chain crisis by moving jobs overseas for cheap labor, or who caused the housing crisis by gambling with our mortgages, there was no public conversation about their fiscal responsibility. No, the only time elites have a problem with bailouts are when it's time to bail out ordinary Americans. I know most of you haven't forgotten the cruelty of 2008, when under the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, banks largely ignored the authority they were granted to extend loans to help families stay in their homes. Meanwhile, AIG was bailed out with multiple lines of credit, totaling about $182 billion. Did we learn from this mistake? No. In response to the corona pandemic shutdowns, $500 billion, $500 billion of taxpayer money went to bail out corporations. Elites helped their own in 2008, and they're doing the same thing now. It's not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. Pelosi is as culpable as Kushner. In fact, back in 2008, both the Trump family and the Pelosi family were Democrats. It was never about left-right, but top-down. It's a big club and you're not in it. Given this backdrop of enormous bailouts for the rich, implemented with little to no public debate, the conversation around student debt cancellation raises some huge red flags. I want to start by saying this. 
by no means is student debt the most corrosive form of debt. I can imagine any number of other debtors who are caught up in situations much more dire, who comprise a poor, less advantaged class, and who need a bailout more. But we're talking about student debt right now for two reasons. One is that unlike other kinds of debt relief or anti-poverty measures, Joe Biden has the power to cancel student debt without difficult to get congressional support. Because most of the student debt is federally held, the result of a policy intended to encourage Americans to go to college, Biden can, by executive order, cancel the debt by simply not demanding repayment. It's the same mechanism that Trump used to begin the student loan pause that's been ongoing since the early days of the COVID pandemic, and which has been saving the average American borrower from paying about $300 extra a month in student loans. The other reason we're talking about student debt right now is because Joe Biden ran on a promise of canceling at least $10,000 of student debt for everyone making under $125,000 a year, and to cancel all the student debt for graduates of historically black colleges and universities. I want to be very clear that student debt cancellation isn't some unreasonable left-wing demand that I'm bringing up. Well, I support Bernie's plan for full cancellation, but conversation happening right now is about holding Biden accountable to his campaign promises, whether you agree with them or not. Now, all that being established, I have to ask, does the elite pundit response to student debt cancellation strike you as, well, out of sync with its silence on the bailouts for the wealthy? Student debt cancellation is popular. Unsurprisingly, 64% of Americans support some cancellation. 44 million Americans have student debt. It has affected the economy in myriad negative ways, including lowering millennial childbirth rates and our willingness to enter the housing market. In 2016, over 100,000 seniors had their Social Security checks garnished to pay for student loans. But you wouldn't know how popular it is from listening to elite pundits, most of whom had parents who were rich enough to pay for their college out of pocket. Jason Furman, who went to Dalton, an elite New York private K-12 school, which cost nearly $60,000 a year, before, that's before he attended Harvard and the London School of Economics, he insists that student loan relief would be paid for unfairly by the masses. But student debt cancellation is not paid for by new tax revenue, and it's certainly not paid for by the poor. Just like the PPP loans for elites were canceled without fanfare, so could these loans to American students. The government will miss out on some profits in the form of interest payments made by these young people, interest payments that are often as high as 8%. But I happen to think that making students pay interest rates that are sometimes double the rates homeowners are asked to pay is a little perverse. Still, even if you disagree, you have to ask yourself, is Paul Pelosi more deserving of loan forgiveness than your child? Matt Iglesias, the founder of Fox Media, is another student debt can cancellation detractor. In a recent tweet, he asked, what is the plan for the day after universal debt cancellation, when master's programs raise tuition and tell prospective students not to worry about it because debt will be canceled down the road? Well, that's a question easily answered. Student debt cancellation, as it's currently being conceived, does not implicate graduate school level debt. So the implication that the government would be on the hook for loans taken out for master's programs is incredibly misleading. But to the extent that there is a good faith concern that one-time cancellation won't solve a larger debt crisis, 
I agree. That's why I backed Bernie's plan to combine debt cancellation with a plan to fund free public colleges and universities. Instead of poo-pooing student loan cancellation, Matt could argue that Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. But he doesn't. And in doing so, Iglesias makes a strong case for why Harvard as an institution should go the way of the dinosaur. Instead of a federal loan program, public funds would be better spent on strong public institutions that can educate Americans for free. Yes, let's avoid federally backed loans that have contributed to higher and higher college costs. But Biden won't do that and possibly can't pursue that given the composition of the Senate and lobbying efforts to maintain the status quo. So I put this to Iglesias. Wouldn't public funds be better spent on canceling student debt than on forgiving the more than $400,000 in PPP loans your employer, the Niskanen Center, received? When will Matt find the time to complain about that? Now, I really like this Iglesias tweet because it represents a broader trend. A lot of people are now proposing alternative solutions to the debt crisis, anything but canceling student debt, including a lot of stuff that I support. Andrew Yang even suggested canceling medical debt, a policy that I not only agree with, but one that I have supported consistently for years. And one, by the way, which cost only $81 billion before the pandemic. That's only about two Ukraine aid packages. What I want to know is why are people only now backing all of these wonderful policy prescriptions? Is it in good faith or is it an effort to deflect from Biden's ability to actually give direct relief to debtors via executive order without the convenient obstacle of Congress? Running cover for Biden seems especially pernicious given his role in creating the student debt crisis. Because of a 2005 Republican bill backed by Joe Biden, student loan debtors were stripped of bankruptcy protections, causing the amount of student debt to triple as a consequence. As a 2019 Guardian article notes, it was a huge giveaway to lenders at the expense of indebted student borrowers, but it passed with the support of 18 Democrats, including Joe Biden. And this is unsurprising. Remember, Joe Biden was known as the senator from MBNA, the credit card servicing company now known as Bank of America. Biden's nickname pointed to the fact that as the senator from Delaware, he was one of, if not the most, corporate-friendly, swamp-friendly senator in Congress. Politicians from Delaware make their political bones by pandering to the banks which headquarter there due to corporate-friendly tax policies. And that means siding with big banks even when those banks' interests were against the interests of Biden's constituents. Because of Biden, if I buy a million-dollar house or a Lamborghini and cannot afford to pay, I can declare bankruptcy, as Donald Trump has done repeatedly following poor business decisions. But education debt? That will follow you until the day you die. And that's what all of this is about running cover for Joe Biden and the Wall Street swamp creatures he has always represented. Student loan servicers and, bank, uh, and banks profit handsomely from administering millions upon millions of student loans, and they spend millions lobbying to ensure that politicians like Biden let them suckle at the teat of American students. Biden was the top recipient of contributions from student loan companies, followed only by Donald Trump. We live in a world where lobbyists are literally writing legislation, but even worse, Working people are being used to whitewash that effort. 
many people in very elite media positions have argued, ironically enough, that it is elitist and unfair to working people to cancel student debt. They argue that poor people are somehow paying for it even though it costs nothing, and even though any revenues the government isn't able to connect, collect by cruelly charging 18-year-olds 8% interest rates on education debt could easily be collected instead by implementing a billionaire's tax, a policy with strong bipartisan support, but which some faux populists seem to never remember to bring up. This was the gist of a recent Newsweek article. But I'm confused. Is it elitist to create a world where your ability to be a doctor or a teacher or an engineer or a nurse is based on your interest and your ability, not on whether mommy or daddy can write a check for you to go to school? If they are so committed to canceling debt, the Newsweek columnist writes, why not push for car loan forgiveness or medical debt forgiveness, which would help more classes of people? Progressives are not rallying for those causes, the author wrote, because it doesn't focus on highly educated elites. But of course, progressives are focused on those things. Here is Bernie Sanders advocating for medical debt cancellation during the campaign. And here are AOC and Bernie advocating for credit card interest rates to be capped. And here's the Debt Collective, the organization that's been leading the push for debt cancellation, fighting for bail debt cancellation, tenant debt, and medical debt relief. In fact, the Debt Collective uses its limited resources to buy up debt for pennies on the dollar from servicing companies and pay it off. In the years after the Occupy movement, it used about $400,000 in donations to buy $13.5 million in medical debt from, for 2,700 debtors, along with $1.2 million of other personal debt, and they canceled it. Now, I hate to impute bad faith to people, but those of us who are sincerely invested in working class and poor people's movements know this. Bringing up other forms of debt cancellation now, at this time, is a pretty transparent attempt to deflect from the fact that Biden only has the executive authority to cancel one type of debt. I wish it weren't the case, but that's true. He can only cancel student debt right now. And running cover for the Biden administration and the big banks who pay him doesn't make you a working class hero. Hold the, Spring, the Springsteen tracks. Running cover for the senator from MBNA is the most elite of elite behavior no matter how much you want to dress it up as a working class issue. The only question you have to ask yourself is this. A rich person and a poor person each have a child with great grades and an interest in being a doctor or a nurse or a teacher. Should the uh, ability of the student and their interest drive whether they get to go to college or go on to medical school? Or should their parent income determine that? Rich gatekeepers are paying millions of dollars to make sure America's students aren't bailed out, but Kanye, Kushner, and Paul Pelosi are. It's corruption, plain and simple. And with your help, it looks like elites are going to get away with it again. Uh, something to quibble with. I'm sure. not sure that um, this policy is as popular as you're making it out to be. It matters how it's asked. Like I just Googled it and you could, so 59% of Americans are worried student loan forgiveness will make inflation worse, for instance. Which I, think I wonder why they think that, Robbie. Because it probably will make inflation worse. All right, worse. so where was this conversation in these polls when the PPP loans were being forgiven without fanfare earlier this year? Yeah, we shouldn't, for, I don't want to forgive any of those other things either. <laughs> Look, I take your point on the yeah, bailouts. It's hypocritical. I agree with you on all that. All of these wealthy people seek bailouts and, and get bailouts. And, 
and they get them. So yes, I get that. Look, I feel badly for young people who took on this debt. It was a really seniors, bad idea. Old people. Nobody well, made I, them do it, no, though. No, but Robbie, you that's sign, not, you make an but agreement. that's not true, Robbie. The government, and you are a little too young to remember this, but in the 90, 80s, 90s, and early aughts, right up through Barack Obama, the rhetoric was clear. If you are poor, if you are from an under-advantaged community, if you are black, if you are brown, if you have low educational attainment, it's your fault. It's not the government's fault. You need to go to college. And here are federally-backed loans for you to go to college and pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. That was the narrative from Republicans and Democrats alike. It was People bad took policy those and bad loans, yeah. and now they're stuck with them. Now, you can say... It was your choice, and you should have understood the bargain. But the President of the United States and everybody in elected office was telling you that this is absolutely the bargain that you should take. This is the ticket out of this situation. And because it's federally backed loans, I would argue that the government has a responsibility. Just like they apparently had a responsibility to cancel all of these PPP loans, which nobody cared about. So here's the thing. I agree with you. There are things that pull more strongly. There's kinds of debts that I would prefer to be canceled. But this rhetoric that you get, you're getting out of this Newsweek op-ed that says it's unfair for working people because working people have to pay for it, that's just not true. And moreover, it ignores the fact that there are all these working people who would love to have the choice. If you don't want to go to college, nobody should have to go to college. And I'm fighting for a living wage for people who don't want to go to college, Look, I unlike a lot of these people. I, right? will, re I will reconsider this policy if we get rid of the subsidized wait, loans wait a minute. first. I, 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 I want that as well. Yeah. But the point we of the matter is, the whole... I would love for Joe Biden to do that. He's not going to do that. That's his policy. Those are his plans. The, all of this distraction to these other policies, it's not that I disagree, mm -hmm. but that there, there are better ways to go and better options here. But the reason that this is getting so much attention and why there is this paid corporate-backed attempt to detract from this particular policy is that unlike a $15 minimum wage or other things that are very popular, including in Republican places like Florida that passed a $15 minimum wage by ballot measure, Joe Biden can't hide behind a parliamentarian. He can't hide behind having very slim margin in the Senate. He can't hide behind any congressional wonkery to not actually do this. He has congressional authority, which we all know, because it's the exact same authority that's been used to keep Trump's moratorium in place. And if he decides to ever lift this moratorium, he will be showing to the world that he is willing to do less for the average American debtor than, frankly, Donald Trump is willing to do. And he's going to have to live with that decision before midterms or before a primary election. In my view, you just you have to fix the terrible incentives that led to this place, which it sounds like you don't like those either. I, and I don't like those we either. We need such fundamental reform. To Look, I, I, I mean, I agree that the colleges are are greedy bloodsuckers, what they've, and, and, the, and the, yes, the go to college, that's the, you know, take on more debt, stay, stay another year, go to graduates, all that advice was bad, and look, I, I feel very badly for the people in those positions, but we can't just do it from my perspective, we can't do this one time kind of, free, you, without changing any of the incentives, because it'll pile up again, it'll, the next people coming along will have the exact same problem, unless we yeah. don't, unless we fix that first. Well, let me ask you this, Robbie. There is now a conversation happening about free public colleges and universities that literally wasn't happening at any point prior to this, including during the Democratic primary when Bernie Sanders was the only person talking in those terms. Now, suddenly, everyone from Andrew Yang to Matt Iglesias is like, oh, we got to do all this other stuff. And they are only saying that because they're so desperate 
to detract from student debt cancellation. So I would, I would argue that the movement is doing exactly what it, it needs to do. It's putting pressure, because it's something that Biden can literally do in this moment and that he's getting a lot of heat for not doing, it's putting pressure on the broader movement to reform American education. I think that's a good thing, but we cannot let pressure off at this juncture or everyone's gonna go back to their laurels. The cost of colleges are gonna keep going up and no one's gonna fix the system. Well, I, that's why everyone, even if this isn't your main priority, even if your broader goals are free public education broadly, you should be fighting to, for student debt cancellation so because that's that's where the political lever is I mean, right now. Congress should do something. There, there should be, we should take this, the frustration that many in the progressive camp have about the enormous debt that these students have, pair that with the frustration that many Republicans have about the kind of values coming out of, out of higher education, the subsidies for the kind of people who hate our lifestyle, and come together and punish colleges for putting people in these debt traps by changing the federal loan subsidies and all that. That would be a great thing for bipartisan things. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that from a speech perspective, we should be using dollars to try to coerce what happens in our institutions. If Republicans want to change institutions, they should become a part of them and change them from the inside, they don't start have to their subsidize own institutions, and do things like that. Well, there's it's it's. I mean, they're subsidizing them. They're giving them all this money. Well, our our tax dollars right. are going toward many public. Goods. I don't know. Are Republicans subsidizing uh, streets going down? You know, the West Village where all the gays in New York are. Is that like a problem too? Like, come on, it's sort of pretty. Oh, we always silly. go to the roads. <laughs> when we go to who will build the roads, we know it's time to wrap the segment. All right. Fair enough. We'll have more rising right after this. wanted to discuss some more election results from Florida. Conservative candidates Roberto Alonzo and Monica Colucci won in Miami-Dade school board elections, making Miami-Dade the largest county in America with a conservative school board majority. Both Alonzo and Colucci were endorsed by the state's governor, Ron DeSantis. So this is being kind of presented as victory for DeSantis, and it really is because if his, uh, you know, his kind of high-profile battles with school policies, critical race theory, don't say gay, et cetera, um, if those were unpopular and were inviting blowback from voters, then you would have expected to see those candidates not fare well. The fact that conservatives are taking over school districts, you know, kind of um, replicating the success the GOP had in Virginia um, last year with Youngkin, et cetera, I think it does go to show once again that this is the most favorable territory for Republicans to run on, is battles about what's going on in schools, what's being taught in schools. It, this clearly animates some voters who are otherwise not maybe down with uh, other Republicans or, or are not drawn by Republican candidates or ideas, but are parents and are concerned about what's going on. I, this is true anecdotally when I talk to people, you know, people who can have a range of views or are consider themselves independents or Democrats on other issues are, are freaked out about schools. Yeah, look, it, it's obviously something that's resonating with a lot of people. Both um, Alonzo and Colucci have as part of their platforms these two two critical points. One, oppose critical race theory and other extreme liberal agendas that harm our kids. And two, protect female athletes and the integrity of female sports. You know, boys can't compete in girls' athletics as a part of an additional addendum on that on, Robert, on Roberto's uh, platform. And, you know, Democrats are going to have to realize that if they don't want their kids to not be able to talk about, 
you know, slavery or the reality of the founding fathers having slaves and the complex history of the United States of America, you know, they're going to have to compete in school board elections or go to other parts of the country. And wait, that wait, is wait, what wait. it is. No, well, okay. So no one, I don't know that anyone has said, I haven't heard anyone say it. And I, in fact, I've heard Republicans, including the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Winston Sears, um, uh, African-American Republican Lieutenant Governor say, the the none of not the intention behind the the, the fights over curriculum. There is no intention to make it so that you cannot teach that there was slavery in America or something like that. Okay, I mean I had a debate with Charlie Kirk about this, and he was very clear that he thought that me saying that people like founding fathers uh, Thomas Jefferson, who you know obviously contributed a lot to the fabric of what we think it means to be in America and had a lot of really important Enlightenment ideals that we still live by was also a slave owner that repeatedly raped uh, his slave and had slave children who he did not free from slavery. That's a mixed bag. And I think it's fair to talk about both of those things as we consider these historical figures, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He interpreted that as being unfair to Thomas Jefferson and said I was being too harsh. I said, I'm acknowledging all of the good things as well. I don't understand why you can't acknowledge the bad. And that's the conversation that I've typically had with people. But if they are happy to teach slavery and if they teach you know, the reality of our complex checkered racial history in this country, then it's not really clear to me what exactly it is that they're objecting to. The objection that I understand is more in a kind of um, HR diversity sort of setting, uh, in, uh, uh, making the kids feel like there are these vast racial categories. Um, this sometimes what's comes a, like from a, what, activists. What's a vast racial category? That um, that if what does that look like? That if black kids are not performing as well, it's because they're black, um, or they have different ways of teaching, or that hard work is associated with being with Western wait colonialism. Minute, those kinds Can we take, of things. Take this one at a time. Sure. So the idea is. It, it's impossible. It's, we're outlying, you know, if research shows that black kids are being treated or something differently in the schools, we're not allowed to consider that? Is no, that, no, no. Like, that that's bans? No, you can't tell them that you're not succeeding because black people historically don't prize like uh, hard work or strong families or all those things. These are ideas that come out of critical race theory agenda mm. aspects of white supremacy handouts that have been all over activist educational yeah, websites are, and training are materials that, some that are people very have bad. Said, but they don't have anything to do with what critical race theory is. They're, but that's they're fine. adjacent to critical those race are, theory. No. <laughs> I mean, no. Critical yes, race theory but, is a legal doctrine that was developed by people like Derrick Bell at Harvard Law School in the 1990s, early right. 1990s. Okay, these people cite critical race of, theorists as their, as their right, inspiration Derrick Bell would have thought that telling some kid that he can't succeed because he's black is ridiculous, right? Well, good, that, then we have no problem. And, and that's, that's the problem with a lot of this is that I completely agree that there are some silly things that have been said by people across the world, uh, across the country, that I don't agree with, and most people on the liberals and left don't agree with as well. There's a lot of really silly stuff that's been said by Republicans as well. I don't think we have to go through it. You know, we have a segment today where we're debunking the idea that 40% of people who took the Pfizer vaccine miscarried. There's been a lot of misinformation right. that are, that's been happening. We're having a conservative on to, to debunk that. Yeah. I mean, the person who put that uh, statistic, I mean, we're going to talk about that in a minute, is Naomi Wolf, who is not a conservative yeah, whatsoever. Nobody wants to claim Naomi Wolf. She's <laughs> a person of her own. But I think the same is true of a lot of these people who have been saying things that I agree are not constructive or good. And I think there have been some liberal overreaches. But I, it concerns me when we have um, 
parents that are being uh, kind of politicized along a certain kind of uh, an agenda, that the founder of that agenda um, has been very explicit about having very little to do with an interest in kids' health or safety or educational value, but everything to do with kind of a larger political instincts. And I think that it's very smart to use something that people are really concerned with to try to polarize the public, but I hope that people are also keeping in mind that there's a broader um, there are broader gains to be had by a certain movement that absolutely doesn't want to recognize that there could be anything in, along the lines of systemic inequities in our school system, various districts getting less funding than others, including districts because uh, you know uh, school funding is based on property taxes, including districts that have been historically redlined where black people and brown people were forced to live because of restrictive covenants that only ended about 40 years ago, and which still largely create very segregated neighborhoods across this country. So that's the only concern I would have. But otherwise, you know, congratulations to the people who voted in this election. And, you know, they're going to be able to live how they want to live. And for the people who don't feel that way, who don't agree with these kinds of policies, they're going to have to realize that they have to get more politically engaged in their localities and or move to a different school district. And that would be fine with me. I would feel the answer to this question of, you know, instead of having these high profile battles over what has to be taught, like in all schools in the state, why doesn't everybody just have their own school? Why don't you just get the education dollars that are being spent on you and you can take them and go to a school that aligns with your values and your family's values instead of making everyone, if we have disagreements, if some schools want to be more creative and more progressive minded or, and they can attract students and uh, that's fine with me and then other then the, these this majority of the parents in the state or in the district who, who want um, something less activisty or less infused with progressive uh, norms around race and gender can do that. Isn't that better? Isn't that lead well, to less fighting? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of parents, it's really difficult to move school districts to mm -hmm. find alternate educations for their kids. I think a lot of parents are unhappy with the educational quality that their schools are experiencing. There's funding issues. Teachers are under a lot of stress right now. They're being paid criminally low wages. They feel like they have to buy their own equipment for kids in the classroom. They're barely able to support themselves, and it's affecting the quality of education. So there are a lot of things going on, and I don't think we should be quite so flippant about the people's ability to vote with their feet in any context. Um, but certainly a lot of people are trying to do that. I can't tell you how many times my own family moved to try to achieve better educational outcomes for my brother and I, who were really underserved in the public school that we went to and the only one that we could afford to go to when we were living in North Carolina when I was a kid. So I, it's really near and dear, but as much as parents want, I remember shopping schools, going to Montessori schools, spending a day here and there and really loving it, but ultimately not being able to afford to I go I know there. someone who is sending their, uh, I believe their eighth grader um, from, uh, we were in New York schools, they're sending them to live with their, uh, with the uh, grandparents in Ohio because they learned nothing throughout the pandemic in the school, had, uh, had to repeat eighth grade. Mm. Sending them somewhere else, somewhere that actually has, like, in-class, <laughs> stable, normal, in-class, less restricted, less pandemic restriction, all that yeah. um, instruction. Well, we're going to have to continue this conversation because there's a, this whole other uh, world that's going on at the same time where there are these bans. J.D. Salinger was trending earlier this week because Catcher in the Rye has been banned. Well, okay, but I will, the thing Stephen, like King Stephen King shared this list of supposedly banned books in Florida, it's fi it's fake. It's completely fake. It is no, it's not true. It's a list of 
I believe it's a list that was assembled by um, uh, by like a library association of like all books that have ever been banned for any reason. Like some of those were banned for for progressive reasons. Like the re the reason yeah. um, Huckleberry Finn doesn't yeah. get taught is not yeah. for because conservatives. And I, I, I was it. talking about this with a teacher friend of mine, and we were agreeing that book bans. That, what, that liberals have done in the past in the interest of not yeah. having kids exposed to the N-word were silly as those, these conservative book bans are now. I just wish there was that kind of free speech consistency when we're talking about places where, like Virginia with Glenn Youngkin, where books like Beloved were a crucial part of that race in the public conversation at the time. But like I said, I'm sure we'll have many opportunities no, to talk there's about no, that. No, there was no, uh, the, you know, there was no, segments. nobody took down Stephen King for spreading misinformation, <laughs> even though that list was made up. You're all over How it, interesting. All right, we'll I, have I more. I don't know about the Stephen King list. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that, but. We'll have more rising right after this. A viral blog post claiming Pfizer's COVID vaccine caused miscarriages in 44% of pregnant women during its clinical trial has been debunked. Uh, that blog post written by Dr. Naomi Wolf, uh, not a doctor, not a medical doctor, uh, made the rounds on social media last week. The website later issued a correction saying the actual uh, led to a faulty percentage. Washington editor at The Spectator, Amber Athey, dug into the Pfizer data. She joins us now to discuss what she found and to weigh in on Wolf's false claims. Amber, welcome back to Rising. Thanks for having me. So help us understand, how did Naomi Wolf get these numbers out of this data that you've now reviewed? Yeah, there were a lot of mistakes that were made and Frankly, I was disturbed when I first read her blog post because I was someone who was, uh, you know, wary of getting the vaccine because of potential effects on fertility or pregnancies. And so I decided that it was important to dig into the data and really figure out if this was true. The first issue that I found was that she had actually double counted the number of miscarriages. Hmm. So in the data table, there are, are two uh, listings of the miscarriages, and that's because they list all adverse effects first, and then there's a second category that lists serious adverse effects. And so obviously a miscarriage would count under the adverse effects and the serious adverse effects tables. So she counted, uh, I believe it was uh, something like 22 miscarriages, but it was actually 11. And then she also did not get the correct denominator. So in the sample, she claims that there are 50 pregnant women and she said there were 22 miscarriages, which as we've already established was wrong, and they, they, that was out of 50 pregnant women. However, there were actually at least 66 pregnant women in the sample. And the reason she mis you can tell she miscounted is because each subject in the table has a unique subject number, and the subject numbers on the miscarriages don't all match up to the subject numbers in the table of 50 women. So we know that there have to be more. Right. And I, I want to make sure, you know, that our viewers are clear. You are, you know, someone who has not been for vaccine mandates. Um, you've had, you know, you've absolutely wanted to take your time to explore whether they're, they're fully. So, you know, you are not someone trying to shove vaccines on everyone. So I, I think you have a lot of <laughs> yeah. credibility to address this and point out that, like, People who are critical of vaccines or vaccine mandates have to, you know, have to have to have the right numbers to discuss these things. And I think, right, if you then average out the numbers that you raised there, we're now getting anyway into a sort of a figure that is broadly close to whatever the the um, the miscarriage rate in the general population, regardless of vaccines, is. Is that correct? 
That's right. You end up getting somewhere between 16 and 18 percent. And for known pregnancies, the national average for miscarriages is about 10 to 15 percent. And you might say, whoa, 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 that's still higher. But we have to remember that we're looking at a sample of 66 women. That is such a small sample that the margin of error is unbelievably high. So this would be well within the normal average for miscarriages. And actually, I don't think the data is very useful at all because we would never use a sample of 66 people in pretty much any other uh, statistical analysis, right? It's just way too low to really make any conclusions. And you're dead on, I'm skeptical of the vaccines. Um, I only got one because I was mandated to by my uh, old employer. But when I was looking at this data, I know a lot of really close friends and family members who did get the vaccine or got two doses of Pfizer or Moderna or what have you. And I just want to make sure that they're not freaking out unnecessarily because Mm -hmm. they think that if they get pregnant, they're going to miscarry their baby. Um, So I think it's important to make sure that we're approaching uh, any skepticism of the COVID vaccines with facts and accurate data and make sure that we're telling people the truth. I'm not on the side of Pfizer. I'm not on the side of Naomi Wolf or anybody else. I just want to make sure that people have the truth, that they have accurate information so that they can make correct decisions and informed decisions about their own health. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people were concerned about this. I had a couple of friends who were pregnant during COVID, one of whom is a gynecologist, and the group chat was rife with back and forth about (laughs) what exactly the clinical data was. And I was, they were lucky to have someone, you know, who was a doctor, uh, you know, actual gynecologist to inform them about what the studies were showing at the time. But it is helpful, I think, to have robust conversations about these things and not just bury them under the rug or just say, let's not believe Nomi Wolf, she's a a crackpot. Actually going through the numbers and having that explanation from someone like you, I think is really reassuring to folks. Yeah, in a statement, uh, go ahead. I just I don't I never want to discount somebody, you know, people make mistakes and and I like to make sure that I'm checking the actual information and not just dismissing something out of hand because of the person, because I do think this is such an important issue. And and there there will be years that will pass before we know for sure the true effects of the vaccines on people. So this is just one study out of many. And I certainly would encourage people to keep digging into the data and figuring out exactly what these adverse effects are and how prevalent they are in people who have been vaccinated. In a statement to the Associated Press, Pfizer said the company does not comment on social media claims, but noted that its phase three clinical study included more than 44,000 people, half were women, miscarriages were not reported as a vaccine side effect. So, right, of course, it's like you said, it's this is theoretically could be something we, you still see down the line. You know, you don't know exactly where what all the potential side effects would be. We're not seeing it right now in, you know, the mass kind of experience. So many people have taken it uh, that, that's underway and certainly not, you know, in, in those numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my final word of caution would be just that we don't really have enough data yet because if their sample size is 40 something thousand people and you know, only maybe a few hundred of those were pregnant women, or we don't even really know the full number. Again, that's just not a big enough sample to draw any conclusions. Um, I would certainly urge Pfizer and other vaccine companies to release all of the data that they have without having to, you know, uh, make these FOIA requests 
to force them to release the data. This is important enough that we should be able to see all of it. These were approved under an emergency use authorization by the FDA, and people have to be able to have access to that so that they can make informed decisions about their health. I actually reached out to Pfizer as well in the aftermath of the Naomi Wolf blog post. They gave me that same statement. I followed up with them actually and asked them if they would be willing to put an expert on the phone with me so that I could try to figure out exactly how many pregnant women they did study and follow, and they did not reply to me. Hmm. So I don't get money from Pfizer. I'm not a fan of Pfizer. I'm not trying to defend Pfizer. Again, I just want to make sure people have the numbers right. Absolutely. Well, you have, like I said, you have a lot of credibility uh, on this issue, so that's why we wanted to get you on to reassure people, because I, I know I saw a lot of freaking out um, about this data, because that would be really, really, really scary. So good to um, you know get to the bottom of that. Thanks so much for joining us, Amber. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. A new study published in the Journal of Pediatrics finds that newly diagnosed cases of pediatric type 2 diabetes skyrocketed in the first year of the pandemic, increasing by 77% compared to the average in 2018 and 2019. Meanwhile, just yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci adamantly denied that pandemic-related lockdowns caused permanent damage to children kept out of school. Let's watch. In fact, I think we need to make sure that your listeners understand I didn't shut down anything. There was a lot of consideration among the White House task force that we were reaching a point where the hospitals, such as in New York City and other places, were being strained to the point of practically being overwhelmed. But in retrospect, and doctor, we did do you regret we... that it went too far? Whatever your original intentions were, and it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback here, but that it went too far, that particularly for kids uh, who, who couldn't go to school except remotely, that it's forever damaged right. them. Well, I don't think it's forever irreparably damaged anyone, but I think obviously, and you, if you go back and people selectively kneel, pull things out about me. I was also one of the people that said, we've got to do everything we can to get the children back in school. I think it's weird to say, I don't think it permanently damaged anyone. I mean, I mean, there, there are cases of, there are teenagers who committed suicide because they couldn't go back to school. You, you could say that, you could make a different argument that it wasn't severe enough, or, and it, it, was, it was warranted because it was necessary to contain the pandemic. I, I, it was weird to me to say there was, like, no one who was permanently harmed by it. Certainly there were people who were permanently harmed by it. Maybe there were not enough of them to warrant doing a different policy, but... Sure. I think that's semantically yeah. accurate. Um, but this is from uh, an article that's discussing the rise in type 2 diabetes. And they point out, you know, quote, further studies are needed to determine whether this rise is limited to the United States and whether it will persist over time. This is from the Dr. Kelsey. There's still a lot of work to be done. Whether the increase was caused by COVID-19 infection or just associated with environmental changes and stressors during the pandemic is unclear. And I think that's right. I think that this, there's a lot to be understood still about what's causing this effect is that kids were not going to school and that school lunches were healthier than the lunches they were getting at home. Was right. it because of activity levels and just the number of steps that you walk per day is down significantly if you were someone who used to commute and walk to school? I know that was the case for myself. You know, those 
Yep. COVID-19 pounds, as they say, the, 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 yeah. the COVID-19 habits just from not going to and I have to guess that that's the day. major factor yeah. that, uh, I mean, even, you know, kids' athletics were even, were held back, uh, extracurricular activities, even to some extent when schools were reopening or getting more serious about being in person, some of those things were delayed uh, too. Uh, you know, kids, it's not healthy to have them, I mean, we were trying to fight screen addiction, right, and, have, and create a scenario yeah. where... They had to, their only way to socialize. Of course, young people want to talk to their friends. Everybody does. But young people especially want to see their friends and create an environment where staring at a screen in their bedroom is the only way you yeah, can see them. You know, I, I think that's all right. And Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, is, yeah, is really fine. easy and fun. The reality was that for the first year of the pandemic, there were no vaccines. Yeah. And people were dying. And as much as kids were dying as a, at a lower rate, kids were in fact dying, including disproportionately black and brown kids who were in the very groups that are now experiencing higher levels of diabetes. So when we're talking about permanent harms, I think we do have to keep that in mind as part of the conversation. So that's for the first year. Um, and then after, you know, not to mention the fact, by the way, that I think sometimes in the conversation about kids and their relative invulnerability to the worst effects of COVID, there's not a lot of conversation about the fact that they are vectors. They bring stuff home. And anybody with a small child knows that you get sick a lot as their parent because they're constantly bringing things home from school. And now you're talking about parents from disproportionately vulnerable populations, parents who might be disproportionately overweight and have these risk factors, which might not draw a lot of sympathy, but is also a risk factor to you if you're trying to keep yourself and your family safe. So I think there were a lot of bad decisions made, as I explained in my radar last week. But there was also, especially in that first year, I think I'm, I'm willing to give a little bit more latitude um, to the hard choices that were made by folks. I think that Fauci makes an okay point there about the fact that he was a decision maker. It's curious to me that so much blame comes down on Fauci as a human being who's going to be gone soon, as opposed to the Biden administration, which is very much still there, still making decisions, and I think absolutely should be held accountable for a lot of these choices. And I would love to have some people talk about how to get past this, like how to actually remedy this once we get through some of the blame game and the accountability, which I absolutely agree, there needs to be accountability. You know, what are we going to do about all these kids. Type 2 diabetes is reversible. These are young kids. This is not type 1. Can we get them exercising again? Can we talk about the food problem in this country where we have so many subsidies of corn oil and mm -hmm. simple sugars that are injected into all of our foods that make it a lot harder for Americans to I never met a subsidy I didn't healthy. want to get rid of. So. <laughs> I love to hear that we agree on that one, Robbie. Uh, Fauci is, is right that when he says, narrowly right, when he says that well, he didn't enforce these. He he offered yeah. guidance, and the thing about it is the is the the officials, the government officials, essentially outsourced the entire pandemic response to these public health advisors and just said, well, we're going to do whatever they say. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of public health advisors, I wanted to um, uh, mention Leanna Wen, mm. um, who is someone I've criticized. I criticized a lot because she was, um, you know, she's on uh, CNN, she's a doctor, she's the former head of Planned Parenthood, and she was this very pro-vaccine uh, pro mandate, pro-mass mandate uh, person. She, at, at one point, I wrote an article about her saying, she said something to the effect of like, well, you can choose not to get vaccinated, but then you shouldn't be able to choose to like go outside. Like she wanted to confine the unvaccinated to their homes. Was very serious about masking as well. Then she did really change her tune um, last winter, like kind of, it seemed kind of suddenly, and, mm -hmm. and with, well, while still saying everyone should get vaccinated, and I think still supporting vaccine mandates, 
On the other, she was saying, no, we should reopen our schools and we should actually reopen them without mask mandates. Um, hmm. So she just did a Twitter thread, and you can put this tweet up on screen. So this was a middle tweet of, of, of a long thing where she says, I accept the risk that my kids will probably, and so now she's saying this, and why she changed her mind. She now accepts the risk that her kids will probably contract COVID in school, just as they can contract the flu, RSV, and other contagious diseases. There is a trade-off. Masking has harmed our son's language development, and we do not wish to keep limiting our so uh, kids' the, social interactions. The change of heart was about her seeing the effects of it she on her con kids. She concedes that. Mm. So she says a couple things. She said Omicron changed her mind because from Omicron on, it was no, she said it was just no longer possible to, no matter how much mitigation we're doing, we were not going to do enough significant slowing of COVID to, for it to really matter. Everyone's going to get it. And she, she said she was willing to, you know, for the good of society and for keeping everyone healthy, keep her, she has two young kids, you know, kind of significantly um, uh, interrupt their normal educational social schedule for like a year, two years, and but then beyond that, she was seeing the harm to them. It was really hurting them, and so she wasn't willing to do it anymore. Yeah. So I, so a lot of people are attacking her for saying, "Oh, now you get it because you and your family." finally have experienced it. And I guess that's fair. I would always just, we should welcome people in once they've seen the light, so to yeah. speak. Also, so, the idea that everyone knew when these kinds of policies were put into place, exactly how long they would last, is a little yeah. dodgy also. Remember, at first they were like quarantine for six weeks. Quarantine for eight weeks. Quarantine for two months. 15 days. There was, yeah, there 15, was, I was, I was, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm the, I'm the cuck. I was okay with 15 days. <laughs> 15 days was fine. I'm like, sure, 15 days. We can Robbie do that. Robbie willing to be a patriot. Then, uh, then uh, on day 15, I got, I got my you know, going outdoors cap on. And uh, no, I never wear a hat. That's a lie. <laughs> we want to get into more research on the impact of school closures. A recent study published by the American Enterprise Institute finds that school closures and online learning have driven a massive decline in enrollment in public schools. Districts that spent more of 2020-2021 in person saw enrollments rebound, while the districts that were remote longer saw more students leave and enrollment rebounds fell along partisan lines. 2021 to 2022 school year, most districts that voted for Donald Trump rebounded, while enrollment continued to fall in districts that voted for Joe Biden. Masking requirements in schools also made a difference. Districts with the longest running mask requirements saw the largest enrollment declines with a net loss of roughly one in 23 students, which I think is, you know, not surprising. But, you, you know, you talk a lot about, and we kind of disagree on this, we quarrel about this, uh, you, you think there needs to be more funding of the education system and the teachers need to get more money. But this is this is a recipe for defunding the various schools you want to get more money if you know, they're doing these policies and they're losing kids, then they're going to have less money to play with because of the per pupil funding. So it's it's going to be like a doom spiral for these schools. Well, so I would love to know more about where kids are going because obviously, you know, you have to go to school. So are people homeschooling or is what people are doing? And I know some folks who've done this is to move their kid to a different place that had schools open and also had fewer incidents of COVID. So I know a lot of folks who, let's say, went to Vermont, a, a place with fewer people and it's more spread out and where schools, frankly, didn't have to close. There wasn't right. that same exigency because COVID just wasn't as big of an issue in the state. Right. Um, you're not dealing with packed public transportation. You're not dealing with... Ryan Grimm did something along those classrooms. lines. I, yeah, think, I was trying yeah. to keep his name out of the thing. <laughs> I, think he, I think he said it. I think okay, he said it all right, fair the enough. Show. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. And, and that, so, you know, is that the kind of thing you're going to see where people end up coming back as a either normalize with COVID or COVID levels actually go down? Or are people going to stay in those environments? Or are people homeschooling and deciding that 
that's what's best for their kids. And, you know, that's an interesting conversation to be had given there's, you know, discussion about socialization and our kids getting language skills. Well, if people are choosing to homeschool and that's the consequence, I mean, people are able to choose their choices. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's completely fair if people, if people want to re-enroll in other places. Yeah. You know, if you're unable to vote with your feet, go ahead and vote with your feet and find yeah, whatever's good for your kids. Of course it's fair. I'm just saying uh, uh, district officials in schools that are losing people, you have to uh, – <laughs> parents want their kids in school, in school, with at this point as minimal restrictions as possible. Well, that, to, to do that, I got to say, I know, I I mean, I know you're going to say, I agree with you, the HVACs, like, let's get them in there. That's like, the thing. Like, HVACs are very effective, and a lot of places in the country – are warm enough to keep windows and, and open yeah. and have classes outside. We had teachers that used to have us sit outside for classes just to switch it up and to get us engaged and have things that are new. That happened a lot. I, I grew up for six years in Kenya and the weather was always good. We often had outdoor instruction. So if you live in California or Texas or Louisiana or parts of the country that have really nice weather all year, I don't see why those kind of interventions shouldn't be ongoing to really help parents. Mm -hmm in this effort to get their kids' education back on the roll. Get, it, get them back, back in school or, yes, outdoors when it's nice out. That sounds perfectly fine. All right, we'll have more rising after this. Today is Independence Day in Ukraine. It also happens to mark six months since Russia invaded the country. In Kiev, public celebrations have been banned and Ukrainian officials and international diplomats have been told to telework due to increased threats. And the State Department has warned Americans in the country to leave immediately. While it's unclear just how long this conflict will continue, an advisor to the office of President Volodymyr Zelensky told The Hill the U.S. is, quote, literally saving Ukraine. We're joined now by foreign policy staff writer Laura Kelly. Laura is on the ground in Ukraine, and she recently spoke with refugees in Odessa and is now in Kiev. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and this is a great opportunity for us, so we really appreciate it. Um, tell us a little bit, so you've been in the country, you just said, since um, uh, last week, and you know, what are you seeing so far? Well, I'll just tell you, I'm in Kyiv right now, and what they have set up is kind of this uh, doom military parade of uh, Russian war vehicles that they destroyed, and oh. they took off the battlefield, and now they have displayed them through kind of the main street of Kyiv. Um, and I'll just turn my camera around for you, if that's okay. Sure. Yes. I'll just show you one of, this is an armored personnel carrier. Um, it doesn't say how it was destroyed, but you can see like there are no tires on it. Um, it's brown. Uh, from my vantage point, I can still smell uh, like the acrid uh, burning of it. Um, and this was destroyed near the Hostomel airport outside Kyiv, one of the um, key battles in the early days of Russia's invasion. And this entire promenade is really kind of a testament to the Ukrainians' force of will to, to push back Russia's invasion. And the um, amount of war machines that they like have that. here recovered from Russia and the destruction uh, that I'm witnessing is, is really something to behold. And I think it's it's a mix of feelings here that uh, people are um, kind of 
maybe it's a little inspiring in uh, what they were able to achieve, but it's also a reminder of everything that they have suffered. So it's a, um, it's a very um, interesting day here in Kyiv. Um, the city was mostly very quiet, except for this man that uh, uh, began playing. Uh, it was pretty quiet on this street. Um, and the streets were empty. All of the celebrations were canceled and people were recommended to stay in their homes. We had a few air raid sirens today. So that was just today. And I arrived in the country last week and I did kind of a, a tour from the south uh, to the east and then um, a bit north, uh, northwest to Kiev. Uh, I saw a lot. <laughs> well, Laura, tell, tell us a little bit about if you could tell us a little bit about the interviews you did with refugees, um, were they refugees from the eastern part of Russia where a lot of the fighting has happened? And if so, I'd love to know what they had to say about the conflict, how they, what, what they would like to see in terms of outcomes um, and, you know, some, if there's any background about some of the reports we had and we talked about earlier on in this conflict about that being a more Russian sympathetic part of the country, has any of that changed in the context of this conflict? You know, it's hard for me to give a, a full view on what is kind of the dynamic, but it feels like the the polling of the country, um, and even in these uh, territories in the South that are predominantly, were predominantly Russian speaking, um, the majority are, are with Ukraine. A lot of relationships have been severed because families that are maybe separated, um, you know, Ukrainians who have family in Russia, who have family in Belarus, who some, some of them even have family in the occupied territories, um, they, they see a different, uh, a different view of the situation. And so it's really, um, I, it's, hard, it's hard to quantify uh, in that sense, but for the majority of, um, of the country, uh, it's this it's this very strong will to push Russia out of all of its occupy all the territories that it's occupying. And that is what um, the Ukrainian officials uh, say their end goal is, including to push Russia out of the Crimean Peninsula and the east. Um, you know, the south is particular because they the Russians took over Crimea in 2014. But when they launched the invasion, they only um, they, they grabbed some southern cities, and there is a, a very close front line that the Ukrainians are fighting very hard for to, to liberate some of those southern cities like Kherson. Um, in the east, it's a very, um, it, it's a similar situation, but with different dynamics. And you have people fighting in the east that have been fighting since 2014 to, um, to liberate those eastern areas that Russia uh, began occupying then. And it's uh, the front line is is very depressing um it's very difficult uh there are incidents what they they kind of allude to every day where people are killed people are wounded um you know i traveled with some volunteers who were delivering uh non-lethal military equipment to these frontline troops on the east and also in the south you know we delivered some helmets and the response that we got for the helmets was just like amazing wow we're so happy to have these and it's not that um it's not that the ukrainian armed forces are necessarily undersupplied, but it's just that in a war things happen you know things get broken things get damaged and you need as much equipment 
um, and it, to replenish it as much as possible. So those are kind of the big impressions that I've that I've gotten so far. So, so you would say your your major impression is that they are the Ukrainians are very pro-U.S. And, and grateful for what the U.S. is doing and want that to continue. Definitely, definitely. I spoke with um, an advisor to the president's office today uh, and, a, and a separate advisor yesterday. Again, what he said yesterday was um, uh, the U.S. assistance is saving, has saved Ukraine. And with this announcement of the $3 billion uh, aid package, uh, it's an incredible um, a, amount for them to continue to prosecute this war. Uh, but it's also an amazing gesture and a symbol of America's commitment that they hope will uh, inspire other countries to step up their own commitments. Um, I think you're showing on the screen some of my footage from the city of Mykolaiv. Um, very, very sad situation. The city is under constant bombardment uh, from Russia. And these um, are volunteers from Odessa. And Odessa credits its survival um, to the defense of Mykolaiv and Mykolaiv being so close to the front line. And Russian strikes have damaged the water pipes to the city. So people have been without potable water since about April. And so these um, uh, volunteers from Odessa go into uh, Mykolaiv and they deliver hundreds of tons of water and people line up as early as 6 a.m. It happens once a week. Um, you know, people are coming with uh, with baby carriages to uh, to truck the the water away. And it's just an incredible show of uh, solidarity and community among these people. Laura, you mentioned that some people you spoke to did have family members who felt differently about the conflict, either because they are now living in Russia or because they are from a Russian, they're in the occupied territories, um, and that there have been substantive disagreements within even intimate family circles about what's going on in the country. Was anybody specific about the ways in which they view the conflict differently? I mean, I think the, the best way to liken it to is the difficult conversations that we have in the U.S. and in kind of the political polarization and how families have kind of been a, a bit torn apart uh, over our own domestic politics. And, you know, some people uh, have a certain have a certain view and maybe watch uh, watch certain news. And uh, it's it's hard to talk people out of their own narratives. And especially maybe with an older generation that was in the Soviet Union before uh, and are used to kind of this change in change in regimes, uh, as opposed to the younger generation that is more Western looking and uh, has experienced democracy and understands how it works. Uh, those are kind of the dynamics at play. Mm. And does life feel back to something like normal in Kiev, you know, in the areas of the country away from the war? I, I imagine it's this very odd thing. It's the same country, but, you know, you can go from one town to the next. It is a place that looks minimally affected and then a place where life is totally different. Is, is, that, what it's, is that what it's like? In, in any situation that anyone is in, you find a way to live, you find a way to survive. And we had multiple air raid sirens today in Kiev. Um, and you have to adapt. And when the air raid siren goes off, you have to think about your safety. You have to think about um, where you're going to take shelter. And then the air raid siren stops and you're safe. 
and then you go about your life. You know, you go to a restaurant, you go to a cafe, you call your friends. Maybe you're, uh, most of us are working. I was working today. The people I interviewed were working today. Um, when I was in uh, Odessa, we sat for a coffee at a coffee shop and across the street, there was a food distribution for people who were displaced because of the war. Uh, you know, we just because uh, the war is going on, you know, the coffee shop is still open. They, those people are still working. Uh, it, it's just, this is, you know, the war is everywhere. You cannot escape it, but you have to live in it. Um, and at the same time, hope that the efforts of the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian government is pushing it to a conclusion. Hmm. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us from Ukraine today. Thank you so much for having me. I know everyone here really appreciates it. <laughs> and we will have more rising for you after this. Okay, here we go. We're hitting the road to shine a light on women who inspire us to be bolder and braver. Leadership doesn't look one way. It's a giant rainbow. You're not gonna break me down. You'll get worn out before I do. Women who push us outside our comfort zone. You got this. And make us laugh. I'm in deep Georgia and they might have never met a Muslim. Or they don't know they have. Or they don't know they have. Because we walk among you. <laughs> You have a marriage that has been on public display mm. since the beginning. You said the gutsiest thing you ever did was stay in your marriage. That doesn't mean that's right for everybody. To throw someone's life away when people really do make changes, I just believe in second chances. My mother needed rehabilitation, not prison. Your survival is your power. Someone say to me, you're not good enough because you have melanin? How dare you? I have a master's in whites. I just want whites to get a GED in blacks. <laughs> if there was ever time for change. Every single person makes some impact on the planet every single day. We can choose what sort of difference we make. I'm gonna Speak truth to power. When I throw rocks, I'm throwing them up. We're gonna go buy the house where we got married. This is where it all started. And the rest and is history. <laughs> Cheers. It was just so beautiful. <laughs> so stunning and brave. <laughs> so that was a trailer for what I guess is Apple TV's latest bid to draw a aggressively liberal audience, uh, a show that looks like it's an interview segments with people like Megan Thee Stallion, uh, Hillary Clinton, obviously prominently featured. She tweeted this out this morning saying, join us for intimate conversations with some of the world's boldest and bravest women. What do Kim Kardashian, Gloria Steinem, Megan Thee Stallion, and, and Jane Goodall have in common? They're gutsy. It's the name of the show. It's the gutsy. name of the show. It is just so brave to showcase, to, to give Hillary Clinton, someone who has not gotten the attention she's really deserved. So. Look, it, look, it, it is, it is on, on one level fine. Look, I find Kim Kardashian a kind of inspirational figure. I, Kim's, Kim's cool. She's a, um, a self-started kind of lady. She's done, I, I like her advocacy. I, I have tremendous respect for some of these figures, not all There's of these There's civil rights figures. advocates. There's Gloria Steinem. There are people a, who are 
I can't say enough bad things about Gloria. Okay, Simon, look, even look, I I don't feel the same way as you as Gloria Steinem, but even I think Gloria Simon's a great example for why I have some dissonance about an ad like this and about a, a show like this. For one, it is frustrating to me that people who have careers in public service do these hard pivots these days into these plain money grabs like this for Apple TV. Nobody needs this. This isn't changing the world. It's not helping women who are disproportionately in minimum minimum wage jobs, but the likes finally, of which Hillary, Hillary doesn't want to raise. Tell her story. She doesn't believe in universal health care. Her husband was an architect of mass incarceration. You have that woman talking about my mother. Was that making the Stalin's moms? Uh, her, making the Stalin's saying my mom didn't need uh, incarceration. She needed rehabilitation. I don't know why you want to talk to Hillary Clinton about that. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> this it's this like uh, identity politics gloss that's put over all of this so that it's just I'm woman, hear me war without having real conversations about the implications of the policies that people like uh, uh, Hillary Clinton have advanced, and even Gloria Steinem. Afghanistan, Iraq. She's the architect of what happened in Libya. Right, right. And to the Gloria Steinem point, she, Gloria Steinem, you know, she was the person who in 2016, when so many young women were pointing out the ways that Hillary Clinton had failed women, and that Bernie Sanders felt to many of us like the better advocate for the issues that were most important to us, including a lot of populist economic issues that Hillary Clinton and the Clintons and the neoliberalism that they proudly brought to the foreground of American politics were ignoring. Gloria Steinem came out and said, women are only supporting Bernie for the boys. She looked at a poll that showed a majority of women under 40 were with Bernie and said, they're only doing it for the and boys. She, well, she provided feminist cover for the Clintons back yeah. in the day when she famously wrote what is, what is referred to as the one free grope rule column, Ugh. which is a fair which is a totally accurate description of what she said, is that, you know what, yeah, Bill Clinton might have done some bad stuff, but he's our guy, so stick yeah, with look, him. She apologized for the, for the statement about Bernie, but you see this over and over again. You see Hillary Clinton dredging up in this latest book that we were almost talking about last week uh, these conversations that apparently that she had with Elizabeth Warren about how Bernie did her dirty during the uh, Oh, right. We never election. ended up talking about that. Maybe they, Ryan and Emily talked about it. I don't know. I think they might have. Okay. But the reality is... I don't believe... Yeah. First of all... I nobody, don't believe it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no I, one believes it. And, and, and there's a reason we don't believe it, right? It's not just because, you know, I like Bernie or I dislike Hillary Clinton. It's because Bernie Sanders is on record for decades talking about how women need to be in politics, how he hopes there's a, a woman president of the United States. He cheer-led for uh, Elizabeth Warren and pushed her to run in 2016 against against Hillary Clinton. He was part of this draft Warren movement. Elizabeth Warren did not want to run and chose instead to throw her lot in with the establishment Democrats. You saw what Warren did. No one forced her to take $9 million of undisclosed money from a billionaire. It came out after the primary was over so that she could stay in through Super Tuesday and damn the progressive chances What was it primary. exactly that she was accused of saying about, or that she said, Bernie that said? She, that Bernie said that she couldn't, a woman couldn't be president. Right. Yeah, I don't believe I don't believe he said that to her whatsoever. And the coordinated timing. I would bet money that he never it, said it was, that. To look, her. it was clearly a hit job. You saw all of these uh, newspapers quoting the same sources, which was really the same person over and over and over again, undisclosed. You know, the Warren campaign responded in a way that they knew would generate the love life activity they wanted, and it was perfectly positioned to come out during a debate. Her little stunt with mm -hmm. the failure to shake hands and to say whatever she said on Bernie on the stage. I think, you know, I'm gratified that most people were, saw it as transparent, and that was basically the end of her campaign. But it's disappointing because a lot of folks see Elizabeth Warren as someone who could have been an inheritor to the Bernie movement, someone who we could have been rooting for in a future, let's say, 2024 cycle if Biden chooses not to run, or even 
even as uh, an insurgent candidate against Joe Biden without the permission of the Democratic Party. I think a lot of people would have been excited about her, but for the fact that she, has, she, she showed her cards in that way. Why are we talking about Elizabeth Warren? The point is that Hillary Clinton has been at the center of all of these scandals, doing nothing to restore the country. Say what you want about Joe Biden. He's not been trying to be divisive. He's been talking in these warm terms, trying to bring people mm -hmm. into the tent for better or the worse. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, seems to be doing things that are naked money grabs like this and saying and doing things that just remind people of old hurts, including hurts that have divided the Democratic Someone, by the way, Hillary Clinton, someone, by the way, who well, not nearly as aggressively, of course, as Trump in the wake of his loss, but did um, question yes. whether her loss was legitimate, yes. was due to Russia, was due to Tulsi Gabbard, yes. was due to all these factors beyond her control, all this nefariousness. And, and she's been allowed to still have a public career. We can have a, She can have a television show for, for not <laughs> to tell her story. She's had a It's fine class. when she does it. It's fine when she does it. She had a Hulu show in 2020, I believe it was. I mean, she just won't go. And look, you have people like Jim. Jimmy Carter, who, God bless him, at 153 years old, is out in the world building houses and trying to make the world better till his last breath. And it's just, public service used to mean something. And now these politicians don't even seem to feel like they have to even superficially put that work in. They just want to go on the Davos circuit and sit around having right. cocktails with people on Epstein's list who... <laughs> That's, all, that's always been her. That's always been the Clintons. You know, and they're, they're all on the Bill Gates circuit. And it's, it's yeah. deeply frustrating because, look, I would love for Hillary Clinton to behave in a way that would make me want to say, okay, it's a mulligan. Forgive and forget. I have no interest in holding on to ire against anybody. And she's an immensely powerful person with a lot of potential to do a lot of public good. But when I see videos like this, I have to believe that she genuinely believes that this is doing a feminism, that this is helping, that all of her years in office and power, her husband's eight years in office, not ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, not codifying Roe, not doing any of that, championing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decision not to step down She's during Obama. She's literally the person who paints like like the rainbow on the bomb she's yeah. dropping. Like that's her ideology. Yeah. yeah, and it's a shame that all of these other women who I think are legitimate and, and have a lot of wonderful heroic things that they have done. You know, I'm not gonna be mad at the woman who like you inter integrated her high school in 1960s having a conversation about what that meant to her and what she thinks about the current state of race in America. I'm interested to hear from her. It's just it's just shameful. It's disappointing that it has to be poisoned uh, by the Hillary Clinton uh, penumbra. Well said. All right, more rising right after this. President Joe Biden is set to address the nation later today on his plans for student loan forgiveness. The long-awaited measure is set to include a $10,000 loan forgiveness for those making under $125,000 a year and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, according to the Washington Post. He is also expected to extend the payment moratorium to December 31st, after midterms. An analysis done by the Wharton School of Pennsylvania University estimates the student loan forgiveness plan would cost between $300 billion and $980 billion, with the bulk of the relief going toward borrowers in top 60% of earners. Here to discuss is Sparky Abraham, strategist at the Debt Collective and founder of Jubilee Legal. Sparky, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, so what do you make of this plan? It's not enough. You know, uh, there are millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of borrowers with far more than $10,000 in student debt. And I'm very, very happy for the people who will have their entire debt canceled. This is about maybe a third 
of student debtors will have their whole debt wiped out by this plan. But for the tens of millions of people who will not, unfortunately, they're not going to see a whole lot of relief from it. Their payments are unlikely to decrease or unlikely to decrease much. That's going to depend a little bit on the details, which we're yet to see. But, you know, to me, it just seems like uh, the executive branch is, is proving that they have the power to fix this extremely unjust problem for all 40-some million people who suffer under it. And they're choosing to do just a fraction, which, which really, to me, is not enough. What do you say, Sparky, to people who make this point that this is not the most meritorious group? Uh, if you were trying to target lower income workers, this isn't necessarily the kind of debt that you would target. Um, and people who make this argument that it is being paid for by you know, more working class people, and it's a, a regressive tax, if you will. Student debt itself is a regressive tax. Student debt is a tax on people who can't afford to pay for college, which generally means people without rich parents. So I don't take that seriously at all. I think all of the discussions around the quote unquote cost of canceling student debt are extremely confused, including this, this new study that, that, that was just cited, you know, it just came out yesterday. I've only looked briefly at the details, but again, it seems to be citing as the cost, the total principal amount of debt that's being canceled, instead of, for example, the amount that will actually be paid back or taking into account the current cancellation programs already in effect. And the fact that for a lot of people, like, I don't know if you all saw, there was a recent New Yorker article by Eleni Shermer mm -hmm. uh, that included a borrower named Betty Ann, who was 91 years old and originally took out $30,000 in debt in the 1980s. And now she owes $330,000 in debt. And she's going to die with that debt. And it's going to get canceled via the death discharge, assuming that something else miraculous doesn't happen. Uh, and, you know, to pretend that the cost of canceling Betty's debt is $330,000 is crazy. And I would also say, even if that was the cost on some kind of math, it wouldn't matter to me because this is unjust debt and we don't leave people in unjust debt. This is a broken system that can easily be fixed and it's time to fix it. I, I guess what would you say to people like myself would say, how can it be unjust if People, ag people agreed, made an exchange in exchange for this amount of money up front so I can get a college degree with the theory that this is going to benefit me in some way, and I'm agreeing to pay this back, and I'm agreeing to pay this interest rate. And what, so what is, where's, where does the unjust component of it come in if it's a voluntary, it's not forced on anyone? Look, everybody loves to kind of have this idea that whatever you agree to is therefore fair, right? If you agree to something, then it's fine, then it's great. Of course, we know that's not true across the board. There are a lot of things that you are not allowed to agree to, even if you want to agree to them, because we recognize that it's not okay. Indentured servitude is one of those things, right? You generally can't agree to be an indentured servant, even if you walk into it knowing everything. Selling your kidneys. <laughs> Right. I would legalize selling your kidneys. I know in a you would, Robbie. Heartbeat. We know you would. Child, but child labor, a lot of things that people will contract for it, and we have labor laws exactly for those reasons. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, we can talk about the fact that people are misled about the likelihood of, you know, what they're going, how they're going to benefit from taking on student debt compared to the cost. We can talk about the cost of college. We can talk about all of these things. But at the bottom, at the heart of this, to me, this is about education. Education is a public good. We do all of our education, except for higher education, as a public, universal, free at the point of service program. And higher education was going that direction until essentially Ronald Reagan came in and said, no, students need to have 
some reason to not protest the Vietnam War. <laughs> and we need to be able to keep black and brown students out of college and not be forced to, to desegregate. And this is, this, this is the genesis of the student loan system as we know it. And so, no, I, I don't think that people's agreement to the debt is all that relevant here. The fact is that millions and millions of people are suffering under this for education, merely for going to school when they couldn't afford to pay for it up front. And that's just not the way that education can or should work. It's not the way it works in other countries, and it's not the way we should keep running it. Yeah, when you're talking, I was thinking also of payday loans. There are all of these examples with really exploitative and userous uh, arrangements with credit card companies where people have to pay extremely high interest rates, whether it's a payday loan, whether it's some of these high interest credit cards that disproportionately prey on poor people who need cash fast and are willing to give up basically you know, 40% of their paycheck in order to get the, the money when they need it to prevent evictions and things like that. And obviously, I think people who say, well, let's attack credit card debt. Let's get at you know car loans. Let's get at mortgage debt, that's more justified debt. I, I personally know how you feel, Sparky. I would say totally. Let's prioritize that. But the difference is that Joe Biden would have to get congressional authority to do those kinds of things. And this happens to be a kind of debt, which because it is a problem of the federal government's own making, issuing these federally backed loans, that he has the ability to take care of. But Sparky, I want to ask you, you speak so compellingly about historical precedents for this kind of action, specifically precedents that are found in spiritual tra traditions like the debt jubilee. Can you explain what a debt jubilee is? Yeah, of course. So a debt jubilee is the, is a, traditionally is a, a ritual and regular clearing of debt, setting people back to equal, essentially, getting back to a point where, you know, we recognize that the commitments that we make, particularly around debt and around labor, cannot be things that tie people down for their entire lives. We can't allow someone to commit to something at 18 that is then going to make their life significantly worse when they're 40 or 50. You know, these things have to have a time limit. And a lot of societies in the past have, have recognized that, including in biblical societies where there was this idea of a jubilee, which happened every seven years. You know, I think not coincidentally, seven years is, is a uh, amount of time that gets carried into the legal context of debt in the United States in various ways, including, for example, that's how long derogatory information can appear on your credit report. Hmm. So all of this is, is a very longstanding understanding that, you know, debt is a means of social control. And leaving people under this form of social control for decades, for their entire lives in some instances, is just extremely unfair and honestly self-destructive to a society. We're tying people down. And, you know, related to that point, I saw a, a study, um, I, I'm blanking on who it was from, but I, but I can send it after the fact, but uh, basically about what people did after their student debt was discharged, either via the existing cancellation programs or via bankruptcy, which is very difficult but not impossible for student debt. And what the study found is that they paid off other debts that were holding them down as well, and they moved jobs. They were able to change jobs and get better jobs as a result of not being essentially indentured by their mm -hmm. student debt. And you know that's something that happened for me too, right? I mean, this payment pause allowed me to actually uh, leave my job and, and start my own law practice and work officially with the debt collective. And I wouldn't have been able to do that, but for the payment pause, and, you know, I want that for everyone. I think everyone needs that. Everyone deserves it. 
And Sparky, what do you say to this argument that, that says, you know, it's, it is going to, to rich kids? I know I'm perhaps the world's worst spokesperson for this because I, I am an unsympathetic case. And to be really, really clear, none of these debt forgiveness policies have anything to do with me or my debt. I have grad school debt, which is not being implicated in any of this. But I wonder what you had a somewhat different trajectory than me, Sparky. And I wonder what, what you make of this argument that says the people who took out debt to go to college are rich and privileged, and this is something that's coming at the expense of working class people who didn't have that opportunity. This is wrong on so many levels. So number one, you might have gone to college with, with some rich kids. I definitely went to college with some rich kids. They did not take out student debt. Right. Rich kids do not take out student debt. If you have enough money to pay for college up front, you pay for it up front. And people who have student debt don't necessarily even have college degrees. So if we move what the argument shifts to is like, okay, well, yes, maybe they weren't rich when they went to college, but college degrees mean you have an increase in your income, and therefore, you know, you're on the higher end of the spectrum if you have a college degree. Of course, 40 people, 40 percent of people with student debt don't have college degrees, right. so that doesn't even apply to them. And actually, if you look at that Penn Wharton study that that was cited earlier, the framing in some of the tweets is, oh, this cancellation is going to go to the top 60 percent of earners. And you, you think about that for a second, you go, wait, top 60%. You look at the numbers again, and it's also true that the cancellation mostly benefits the bottom 60% of mm -hmm. earners, because mostly it benefits the middle. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all about, okay, well, how do you want to try to spin this? But the fact is that, well, I guess one other thing to say, which is that if you, you can also look at comparisons between the income of people with college degrees who took out student debt and with college degrees who didn't take out student debt. And surprise, surprise, people with college degrees who did not take out student debt have far higher income after college because they started out rich and that's how a class system works. So if what you're concerned about is making sure that rich people pay their fair share into our common social project, the way to go about that is through the tax system. It's not through this weird monstrosity of a debt tax imposed only on people who want to get education but can't afford it, just do an income tax. But why does that become, the way we're doing it now, it becomes essentially the taxpayer's liability, people who maybe didn't go to college, I mean, for, for whom a group of people who took out loans to go to college and then didn't bother finishing college and are now in debt are probably not a tremendously sympathetic group of people, to be frank. I, you know, say that all you want. I talk to people every every single day. People call and email me who are having their social security disability benefits garnished for their student debt, who are completely stuck in their lives, who are making little or no money with absolutely no chance of paying off their six-figure student debt, who are desperate. You know, people, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's very hard to express to people who are not in this situation and who are not regularly in contact just how miserable this issue of student debt makes people feel in their lives and just how trapped they feel with absolutely no escape. And so you can generalize, but like, you know, go talk to people about this. Have folks on the show. We just started the Debt Collective, just uh, uh, launched a, a 50 over 50 strike of, of debtors who are over 50 years old, who are deep, deep in student debt with no chance of ever getting out of it. Have them on the show and ask them about why they're so privileged. Bring Betty Ann on the show and ask her about her privilege. 
Yeah. Look, I, I'll say this. You know, I won't deny my own relative privilege in this world, but I talked to my mom about this a lot. I was a first-generation college graduate, and she talks about how she almost was derailed from finishing her degree because she couldn't come up with four hundred dollars to 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 pay for the semester one 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 semester. And for four hundred dollars, Howard wasn't going to let her enroll in classes. She took the semester off. She worked as a legal secretary in college and was able to come back the next year. But a lot of people who are derailed in those ways, life happens, family happens, all kinds of things happen, and they become permanently derailed. And folks will often tell you, I would love to have finished my degree. I would have loved to have gone back to college, but I wasn't able to do so because I simply wasn't able to come up with the money. And it feels like punishing people for being poor is not exactly how we want to run our education system. Sparky, I hope people do continue to follow you and listen to you. I think you're a very compelling advocate for your cause. Obviously, I've spoken to you on Bad Faith Podcast quite a few times. Um, and thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks, for much, thanks so much for having me. And I would encourage everybody to go to debtcollective.org. You know, if you are happy about whatever cancellation happens, all of that starts with the uh, Corinthian 15 student debt strike. So please go check out the website. Thanks, Sparky. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Paul Pelosi has pled guilty to driving under the influence. The husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was booked for a DUI in late May after the car he was driving was involved in a minor crash in Napa Valley. A judge sentenced Mr. Pelosi to five days in jail. However, after applying a time-served time credit and conduct credit, that was reduced to one day, which will be served through a court work program. Pelosi will be on probation for three years and pay upward of $1,700 in fines. Pelosi must also install an interlock ignition device on his vehicle for one year and attend a three-month drinking driver class. What do you think, Robbie? I guess it's not just uh, people who randomly smash people in the face with rocks on New York streets. Even the rich and famous get out scot-free as well. It's, uh, there we go. <laughs> Look, first of all, I don't think either are getting off scot-free. The guy who you know hit that woman in the face is going to jail uh, and and Pelosi, Finally, yeah. you know, what was so interesting about this is I think, I mentioned this in my radar, I think a lot of people were really scrutinizing this for instances of wrongdoing or special treatment. And I did watch a segment on Fox News where the expert there agreed that this is pretty par for the, for the court. No, yeah, it seems, uh, I mean, it's, it seems standard. I mean, it, it wasn't just, it was driving under the influence and he was involved in a crash. He right. wasn't just pulled over. And right. He actually crashed the car. Right. And said it was a minor crash, but I don't so know. So the, the system where he, the kind of breathalyzer interlock system on his car right, seems like a significant yeah. um, intervention. I yeah. imagine it's a very nice car that he's going to have to install this advice on, which does seem like a little bit of poetic justice here. Maybe a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have Tesla fittings for no breathalyzers? Idea. That is Probably not. <laughs> I would, I would love to see the shop that worked on that of those pictures. <laughs> not that I'm, not that I'm eliciting mm -hmm. <laughs> or trying to solicit a leak. But yeah, look, you know, the fact that he has, um, you know, people are going to think that I think that he's getting credit for time served and those kinds of things are uh, a special treatment. But it does seem like that is also par for the course that he has to do this community service, uh, these these drunk driving classes. Does seem like an imposition for someone right. like him. Okay, so this that that seems warranted. This punishment seems perfectly within the realm of appropriate to me. Mm -hmm. However, I'm sure, and when you'll probably agree with this, that a person of less privilege could have gotten the book thrown at them more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wrote about a case. I was going to maybe do a radar on it, and then I didn't end up doing that. But I, I wrote about a case for Reason Magazine. Um, kind of different issue, but this woman, her life was really torn. She left her kids mm. at the park 
to go buy, a, she ran to the grocery store to buy a turkey, middle of COVID, so she didn't want to bring her kids into the indoor grocery store. The grocery store had a sign that said, please don't bring in any excess people. Mm -hmm. Left it at a, well, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old at a well-lit park where she knew someone at the park. They were just going to play on the play place for like 15 minutes while she goes to get a turkey. Mm -hmm. um, the police end up char uh, charging her with like child endangerment, and then the police actually decide. So she has to, she has to do a parenting class or something. Mm -hmm. It's total. It's horse crap. It's yeah. totally dumb. And then crazier than that, the Department of Child Services. This is Arizona. Puts her on a a. Uh, they have a lit. It's a, equivalent to the sex offender registry, mm. etc. For delinquent parents, mm. she's not allowed to work with children. She oh can't like volunteer at the church. This is this crazy dystopian list. This is the state of Arizona. They have a list with like like one percent of the citizens of Arizona are on it. They probably don't even know, because the the Department of Child Services procedure has nothing to do with the police procedure. So mm. the police were done with it after mm. they made her take the parenting class. But then this department has a quasi-judicial procedure that doesn't have, the, and that their standard of evidence is probable cause, mm. not like preponderance of evidence, not, it, it's just probable cause. They had a farcical Kafkaesque hearing. Yeah. Yeah, um, look, you're not going to get me to argue against yeah. the idea that the police I more uh, just wanted to talk about this case, because <laughs> it was so outrageous. You can read about it. I wrote about it at Reason.com under yeah. my name. It is crazy. Yeah. Look, I, you were reminding me of, uh, what was the case, Crystal Mason, who was the Texas voter who was charged with voter fraud because she like went to the uh, like cast a provisional ballot when she was oh. supposed to cast a different kind of ballot only ballot voted once but was sentenced to five years in jail Jesus. for making a mistake when she registered and tried to vote so yeah there are these instances which often for very political reasons people get the book thrown at them there are a lot of these child endangerment cases where a parent will you know, run very quickly to the car with a, an older child not even necessarily right. someone who's at risk of overheating and stuff in the car and you know, it, it is a problem because something if, all of our parents did, by the way. Right. I was left in the car I was, uh, with the windows down. With right. the, I was left and, alone. And, and even if totally it's not fine. ideal, like I think even if it's not ideal that you think that someone's kids are alone at the park or in right. a car, the reality is that we have people who are very constrained in their childcare abilities because there aren't a lot of support, especially for single mothers in this country. And it is what it is, um, and it is difficult. It is frustrating that there is a criminal response mm -hmm. to what should be a social problem that needs to be remedied, if anything at all. So. But my, my point being, there, there's there's a registry of whether you're a fit parent or not that has terrible due process components and includes people who didn't do anything wrong and are no threat to kids yeah. whatsoever. There's no registry of like drunk drivers or people who shouldn't yeah, be allowed to have alcohol. They should, is, it's they interesting should link both crimes. of those things to uh, your your. Uh, uh, Tinder profile, so that people can swipe can see if you're going to be a good parent or not, and a safe driver. What's no, on the what, what is on the Tinder? I have no idea what it, what goes into a Tinder. I don't profile. know. I don't have Tinder. I'm an adult. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, we're going to have a fiery panel debate on student debt as Biden solidifies his plans. More of that conversation. So look out for that. <laughs> My favorite. It is truly your favorite. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this juicy content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Count that animation. And we will <laughs> see you back here tomorrow. Same time, same place, same Robbie and Brianna. <laughs> Some different guests. Okay. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.